You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have uh, Allison D. Rosen, MS. Uh, she's at the Baylor College of Medicine and the Dan Duncan Comprehensive Cancer Center. So, uh, Allison, thank you for coming. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, tell me, what's, um, within the world of cancer, what is your focus? And uh, then I want to ask you a little bit about how you got here. Um, my focus right now, I worked in um, oncology research for about 12 years in cell and gene therapy. And then I recently, um, about two and a half years ago, switched over to work in cancer prevention. So outreach and education within um, kind of the health disparities realm here in Houston. And I did that because I went through cancer myself and am a colon cancer survivor. Oh, man. So what, you know, in working in cancer for so long, you were working in the, uh, I guess, the treatment side. Now you're working in the prevention side? Yes. I guess straight to the point, is there a way you believe to prevent some or all cancers? Or what's what's your uh, overall thoughts here? Uh, so, I mean, we work in our office specifically on the, the types of cancers that there are screenings for. So cervical, HPV, colorectal, and breast cancer. And then we go out in the community, obviously, and promote um you know, skin cancer, skin cancer prevention with sunscreen and a few other things. But um, I think colorectal cancer is preventable through screening for sure, because any of my friends that have gotten the screening that they are supposed to get at the age they're supposed to get, you know, they've found precancerous polyps, they've gotten them removed, and then they're done. And, you know, if they don't find anything, they have to wait 10 years to have, like, they wait 10 years to have a colonoscopy again. But then if they find something, depending on what they find, it's three to five years. And being a researcher, a previous re- researcher, you, you know, just based on the gut and the microbiome with the older population, now it's 45 for screening based on recommendations from the American Cancer Society, but 45 and above should be screened, and there's a very simple take-home screening test that can detect microscopic blood. And then if that's positive, then they move on to to get a colonoscopy. And I was I was actually 32 when when I got diagnosed, so I was quite young, and and insurance might not have covered my screening, but you know I was having symptoms. And so if you're younger, the the big message that I that I always advocate for and talk 
talk about when I'm in the community, even educating providers about their 45 and above population, is that if you have a patient that comes in with symptoms, you know, rectal bleeding, you know, their bowel habits have changed, unexplained weight loss, um, anemia, different things like that, I think that they should um, send them to GI to get screened or even give them the screening just within their PCP's office so that, you know, they can see what's going on and this fit test can pick up that blood. And if it doesn't, then every year after that, you have this specific screening test. But that's a way that you can prevent colorectal cancer. And the more people know all ages, the more I think we can prevent this cancer. Now they're doing research now to figure out why specifically colorectal obviously is my my area of expertise, but they're doing research now to figure out why people are getting it at an earlier age. Um, you know, the 45 to 50 year age was just recently last year. Um, it was lowered from 50 to 45 due to research showing an increased incidence in that specific subpopulation. And eventually the more research funding we have and the more um, scientists can figure out why people are getting it, then hopefully everyone that is having these symptoms will not have an issue getting the screening that they need if they think something is wrong. And, you know, with with um, cervical cancer and HPV, there's vaccines that you can get, and they're not mandated by many, some, I guess some districts have them. In Texas, it's not required for students to go to school if they get this this HPV vaccine, but it can prevent a lot of cancers later in life. So it's between like nine and 11 years old that your boy and girl should get these vaccines. And I'm, I'm a big proponent of that too, because if, if you can prevent multiple cancers from developing later in life by getting a, a vaccine that is um, harmless to your child, then I think you should do that. And, and then you have breast cancer. What, what, do you, what do you mean? What, what kind of vaccines? For, uh, There's an HPV vaccine. A little bit about HPV. Um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not an expert in that field, but I can at least from what we do within our office, we um, work with physicians that kind of educate um, primary care physicians as well, so that when children come in for their wellness exam, they get their normal vaccines that they need to go back to school. But then there's human papillomavirus that they can get as well as sort of an option, and it can help prevent multiple different types of cancer. And research has shown that. Um, later in life. And you get it before you get this, these vaccines, you're supposed to get them before you're sexually active. Okay, got it. And continuing on, you're saying? Um, so, well, with breast cancer, there's mammograms. So mammograms can can um, show early detection of cancer or at least pick up different things. So, you know, your doctor, at certain ages, you're supposed to get these mammograms. A lot of, a lot of the prevention is you know, obviously based on your genetics and based on your family history and just kind of having a knowledge of of, of what to, to know and to look for. So let's say someone in your family had breast cancer, you should insist on having mammograms earlier than they were actually diagnosed because it just didn't happen overnight. And same with um, colorectal cancer. If someone in your family has been diagnosed with it, you should have um, uh, screening 10 years earlier because colorectal cancer historically has developed within 10 years. Well, if you are found to have cancer in any of these, uh, you know, with any of these assays, does that, I mean, it's not going to prevent it. It's just a new, uh, you know, it's a screening really, right? Well, early detection is key, really. So certain screening tests can pick up cancer or, you know, in, in the case of colorectal cancer, precancerous polyps um, can, be, can be detected early on. I've met 
um, quite a few stage one colorectal cancer survivors or patient survivors, whatever you want to call them. Um, I call everyone um, a survivor based on the, from their, from their first um, day of diagnosis. And so 90% chance of survival and, and full remission with stage one versus, you know, not as, as high of a rate for, you know, stage three and four. So it's, it's, when you have these symptoms, I mean, when you're 50 and above, it's a part of your wellness exam. And, you know, people say, oh, I don't want to get the colonoscopy because I don't want to, I don't want to take a day off of work. I don't want to drink the prep. I don't want to do clear liquids. Well, personally, I would do anything to have, you know, had the screening earlier so that I wouldn't have had to have gone through my cancer treatment. I mean, the two days of, you know, clear liquid slash, you know, drinking a prep and going in for a procedure are so much easier than chemotherapy, radiation, and multiple surgeries. Well, right, that's true. I mean, when people are showing, you know, a problem on a screening, I mean, how often are they able to be helped? Um, say that again. I know it depends on their stage and everything, but... Yeah, no, well, I mean, if, if, if you end up getting screened and it, 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 you know, it shows that there's blood in the stool and you have a colonoscopy, the sooner that, you know, that you can get in to have that, that colonoscopy, you know, there's not, I don't know the specific research as far as, you know, you find microscopic blood blood on a fit test and you go to colonoscopy, what the stage is, but it's just early detection. So, you know, right when, when you turn, you know, I, I I advocate for 45 now based on American Cancer Society's recommendations. Insurance doesn't always cover that depending on where you live. But when you go in and you get that, then it, the research shows that the likelihood of developing colorectal cancer or picking it up earlier is exponentially higher than if you wait. And that's, I mean, that's based on research yep. that usually right. the, it's, it's, it's in this 45 and, and above population. Well, in addition to screening, what about uh, actual preventative measures? Do you know of any in the research or they don't really know well, how to sound any? Yeah, yeah. So when we're out in the community, we say limit your red meat. Um, that's not really good for colorectal cancer. Um, you know, a healthy lifestyle, eating real organic food, exercising. I mean, just sort of healthy habits in general. So exercise, diet wellness kind of know what you're what you're consuming and, and red meat is not very good for 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 colorectal cancer no that's not that's not everybody but just in general if we are healthier you're gonna the likelihood of developing cancer is 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 smaller but you know I have friends that were marathon runners and in the best shape of their lives but they still developed colorectal cancer so it's not always you know the healthiest of people the you know someone that might be overweight that might develop or um, colorectal cancer, but in order to have the best chance of preventing um, cancers, healthy healthy living is is definitely the way to go. I think real food versus processed food in general is better for besides cancer, just your life and different diseases overall. Anything interesting from your research? Uh, any new treatments that are coming? Well, so my research, my, yeah, yeah, my my research was um, I worked in a, like a leukemia research lab. So it's all about cell and gene therapy. And with that, um, specifically, it's been a while since I've been in the lab, but really, I think, you know, as, as a cancer survivor and someone that works in oncology, there are genes that are coming out every single day that are involved in pathways for different types of cancer. So, 
you know, it's ever evolving. And so the funding for oncology and cell and gene therapy is so important because, you know, I had a genetic test when, when I got, when I developed colorectal cancer and it showed that no genes were involved. I had breast cancer and colorectal cancer because I have breast cancer on both sides of my family and no gene was involved. So for me, it's, it's like, okay, the gene hasn't really been figured out yet as far as what might have been involved with me developing cancer. So I think constantly, you know, when I was in the lab, they were studying different genes and the pathways, and it's so complicated. So the more funding you can get into into research for cell and gene therapy, the more they can figure out what genes are involved and how there might be targeted therapy specific for genes that, that affect different types of cancer to help in treatment. So your thought is that it's mutation in genes is what causes cancer or are there I mean, other mechanisms that uh, you come to see? I think I think that that definitely has something to do with it. Not all cancers are going to be genetic, but the ones that that might be genetic or or different genes that are that are maybe mutating or or the change in the microbiome, you know, all of that could possibly be related to genetics. I think that we have a long way to go to figure out why people get cancer, who, when, how. You know, there's not really you know, a definite explanation, but researchers are working really, really hard to figure out why. I know that in colorectal cancer, they're studying the gut microbiome and trying to figure out what is going on in there and why younger and younger people are developing this disease. And, you know, it might have something to do with the food that we're eating, might have something to do with environment. But, you know, I think the jury is still out as to, to why, but there are some amazing people all over the world that are trying to figure out why because you know you can do you can do as much as you want as far as treatment but until you go get to the root cause as to why people are are developing the disease then it's hard to to um to advocate and it's hard to um you know targeted targeted i think targeted cancer treatment is the future now when that will actually happen i don't know if it will happen before my lifetime or not but i really do believe that that the genes that are made up of our in our dna are ever-changing in different ways. And, you know, the more they can study it, it's so, so complicated. Um, but the more they can study that, the more people can figure out why people are getting all sorts of various diseases. You mentioned the microbiome a couple of times. A lot of cancer researchers don't. What's what's new with the microbiome and how does it affect cancer, in your opinion? Um, I think the microbiome in, in, in colorectal cancer is, is, you know, it's, it's mainly the gut microbiome that I'm talking about when I say that. And so what, what's made up of the gut? What, we, what can we find in the gut that's changing in a normal, normal person without cancer versus someone that has cancer? And I think they're studying the difference between those two people and trying to figure out what is the difference? Is it gene related? Is it, you know, is it something else related that they can, they can target and, and pick up in some sort of screening method eventually in the future to pick up um, colorectal cancer earlier? I know that's sort of a, a very broad sort of answer, but there's not necessarily um, enough research being done yet. But I know a lot of, of people are trying to study a healthy gut versus a gut from someone that's that's developed um, colorectal cancer. And if they can figure out what the differences between those are, um, then then they have a better chance of figuring out ways to screen for um, what's what's happening with that change. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and again, any specific microbiome-related research that you've been looking at to uh, inform you 
I'm I am not in that that field anymore. So not me. I I I merely focus on prevention and outreach and education. So my main my main thing now is to or my main I guess job duty and um, passion is going out in the community um, and educating the underprivileged, underserved minority populations that might be at higher risk or might not know about screening for um, colorectal cancer to educate them about simple things like that that fit test is available to them when they turn 50 and they need to get it and then that will let them know if they need to get um, a colonoscopy. I think that population um, has no idea that these sim- simple take-home tests are available to them and covered by insurance. And um, so that's what I say now. So I can't really speak on speak to the research that's being done in the microbiome. I just know that there is a lot being done. And as soon as stuff comes out, it pops up, you know, usually on my um, my Google searches. So I'm looking forward to when when more information comes out so that, you know, I can help with it or or that they can release it. And then you'll see it. I know you'll see all that come out because um, the news is covering the fact that younger people are getting colorectal cancer and people are trying to figure out why. Well, I figured you'd be keeping your eye on it. That's why I wondered if there's anything new that pops up in your radar, but not yet. Okay. Um, in, in terms of screening, uh, whether people know or not to get screened, I would bet a lot of them just don't. What do you, what do you see that holds people back, if anything, about getting screened? They don't know. Um, a lot of the, the people that we see within the community, they, they don't know that they they have this this screening method starting at 50 that's very easy, like I said, very easy take home. Um, we focus a lot on Hispanic, Latino, Vietnamese, and Asian and um, African-American population because they're um, at higher risk for developing colorectal cancer. And so we educate the primary care physicians about making sure they communicate the right way to their patients because they, I just recently read that 80% of, of patients 50 and above will get screened for colorectal cancer if their um, physician recommends it. So that that recommendation from their provider is one of the most important things that a patient can hear. And, you know, they have trust in their their provider. So if they recommend it, they're more likely to do it. Um, also, there's this preconceived notion. I mean, the PrEP is not the greatest. I hope in the future they come out with a, um, a, a PrEP for a colonoscopy that's, that's a lot better. Than, than what is now. I've had it multiple times. My sister just had one and, and it's not the most pleasant thing to drink. I think also some people seem to not be able to maybe get time off of work because you have to take a day off to go in for the procedure. And, and it's usually about a half a day max, but some people feel like they can't take it off. But really, um, I think educating the population about if you take that that day off and you're really looking out for your health, you could prevent having to get colorectal cancer. And if it's clean, it's 10 years before you have to get screened. And, and really, I think, you know, the messaging saying, do you want to be there for your family? Do you want to be able to walk your child down the aisle? Do you want to see your grandson or granddaughter, um, you know, being born? Really taking care of one's health is the most important thing you can do um, for yourself and for your family. So, so really, it's it's educating them that the screening is out there and that it's affordable and that it's accessible. What's involved in a, in a colonoscopy? I mean, if you want to give, you know, a few yeah, yeah. So, so basically, with a colonoscopy, 
you have usually, depending on, you know, your doctor's office, there's, there's t- two days before your procedure, you go on clear liquids. And it can't have anything that has red dye in it because red, red dye will show up as, you know, something like blood. Essentially, you have to do the clear liquids 48 hours before so that your system is at least cleaned out a little bit. And then, you know, 24 hours before you, you start this um, colonoscopy prep. And so there's various types of prep. The most common that's used within um, the U.S. is something called Go Lightly. And so you, you start drinking this prep usually in the, you know, the, I guess, early evening, about every 15 minutes you drink this, um, this solution that you've mixed that's cold, you drink it, and essentially it clears, clears you out. It, it cleans out your system so that the next morning when you wake up, and sometimes you have to drink again in the morning. It just depends. It's very specific on the prep, but the doctor always gives you specific instructions based on the prep preparation, um, the colonoscopy prep that they've given you. So you drink it at night usually, and, and then you start going to the restroom a lot. And then sometimes you wake up a few hours before your procedure and drink more. And then you're sufficiently, you should be sufficiently cleaned out. So, I mean, it sounds gross, but essentially you're, you're going to the restroom and it should, it should be as clear as possible when you go to the restroom. And, and then when you go in for your procedure, you know, you talk to your doctor they give you some medicine. So essentially you won't feel anything. And, you know, a GI doctor or an endoscopist will, will look in your, in your colon through a, um, a scope and see if they see anything, any, any, um, you know, di- any, anything in your lining that looks unusual, any precancerous polyps, any inflammation, any, any irregularity from a normal, essentially colon. And, and then, you're done. So that whole procedure, usually if there's no complication in and out, you know, they're, they're in and out in about 20 minutes, but you know, you have to drink the clear liquids. You have to um, drink the preparation. And if you do all that, you know, 48 hours later, you get a clean colonoscopy. You don't have to do that again for 10 years. Now, like I said, it's a little bit different if they find precancerous polyps or, or other things within within your colon, that's usually three years or five years, depending on what they find. But, you know, that right there is saving lives, that procedure. So two days of, you know, not being able to, to eat and, you know, just eat or you know, drink clear liquids and, you know, taking a half a day off of work is a hundred percent worth it um, versus, you know, like I said, going through the cancer treatment because it's a lot, a lot, a lot worse than, clear liquids and, and uh, a colonoscopy prep. Why well, the the hands off work? Because the, the people sedated once they have the colonoscopy? Yeah, yeah. Usually, yeah, you're usually lightly sedated. Sometimes you're fully sedated. It just depends on, on the doctor's office. But, you know, even if they, they get you in for, let's say, a 7 a.m. procedure, they usually want you to go home after you're done, which will probably be by the time they intake you and get you back there and everything it's usually about a half a day and they usually want you to take it easy the rest of the day. So, you know, I know some, some employers, that's a part of their wellness. So they let you take that time off and take sort of a sick day um, or vacation day so that you can get all that done because it was better for them as far as insurance purposes. You know, obviously they don't want um, any one of their employees to develop cancer, but you know, so the screening is, is, is encouraged. Um, you know, just like, a, you know, women get their 
get their, their, like I said, get their mammograms and get their pap smears. Um, colonoscopy kind of falls into that sort of wellness. Your flu shot is another thing you should get. I think most people um, just have to, when they're at 50, it's one extra thing you have to add on to, to the list of things you should do to, to stay healthy. So you're saying now the recommendation has come down to what, 45? Yeah, so so American Cancer Society is, has now recommended, based on research and the higher incidence in that 45 to 50-year age um, group, to get screening at that age. Now, that was just last year, so that sort of takes time to, to come down to the, uh, come I guess, come down the ladder so that it will eventually be covered um, within healthcare systems, hospital systems, insurance companies. So it's going to take some time before um, that recommendation is, I guess, implemented. But, you know, I feel like people being even more aware that American Cancer Society now recommends it at that age, um, they're more empowered to ask their doctor at 45 about it. And like I said, different states are different as far as um, coverage for it at 45. So I encourage everyone to ask their provider at 45, does, you know, or ask their insurance company, does this plan or does my coverage or does your hospital cover, you know, colonoscopy screening starting at 45. Mm-hmm. What about, what about uh, culturally? culturally you you think you deal with a lot, a lot of different groups. And I'm sure they have different uh, thoughts about doing this and uh, social mores and everything. Anything you run into that's unusual or that makes it typical? Um, I think that um, there's different, like I said, di- when I'm in the community, there's different communication tips that work with different populations. I think that um, within the African-American population, um, we, there's research that shows that the woman sort of is is the health decision maker. So if, if a provider can convince her to get screened, she'll go back and convince her husband to get screened. And so we really focus on providers communicating to the woman of the family that makes those major health decisions to make sure that she convinces her uncle, her brother, her husband to get screened. Um, and then you have within the Vietnamese Asian population, these families are very, very close knit. And so within their population, you really want to find um, sort of the elder in the group because they're the sort of leader of the family. And if, if they do it, then everyone else is going to kind of follow suit into getting screened. And then the Hispanic Latino population just needs to know that there's easy take home sort of um, tests. I mean, they all sort of they all need to know that as well, but they're family oriented as well. So, you know, messaging like, do you want to be there for your daughter's, you know, daughter's birthday or your granddaughter's wedding? Um, those are sort of communication tips that will help them think about the importance of getting that colonoscopy and how it's it's not just affecting them, it could affect their whole family. So I think the messaging of don't procrastinate, um, there's why you shouldn't be lazy about it. Um, and there's a group called the National Colorectal Cancer Roundtable that just came out with a, a sort of communication um, guidebook for 2019 that um, kind of lists all these, the messaging that you should be using within your healthcare system that will be helpful in order to convince specific populations um, to get screened. So I've mainly focused on the communication tips um, that they had last year at this national roundtable. And so now I'm going to get more in depth within this to see what else I can take out to the local Houston community that I work with 
um, to help convince even more people to get screened. So there's there's different, I guess, um, reasons why specific populations don't. There might be, you know, affordability, procrastination, knowledge. But we try to, to take all of those and make sure they have everything that they possibly need, all the knowledge they need to go and ask for that screening test. And they want to for themselves as well as the, the, their family's future. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. What's, well, the, what's best the best way for people, people to, to uh, find, find out, out more? more? Yeah, I mean, we've given them a pass for most of it, but you know, how can they get in touch if they have any specific questions? They all can reach out to their American Cancer Society. They have a ton of information about screening, and they can read more information on there as to why they they now um, suggest or, or recommend 45 for screening. We have um, a website on our page. Let me go to that right now, and I can tell you what our way – we have information, and we have also videos – that are it's, we have a theater outreach program within our office where we have monologues in Spanish, in English, and in Vietnamese that kind of explain why screening is important and, um, and the importance of it in sort of say a comical way, but an entertaining way. And so that should help convince people to get. It's another way to help convince people to get screened. So right. I say I say National Colorectal Cancer Roundtable is a great resource. American Cancer Society is a great resource. And then I'm looking up, I don't know, I need to get our website um, for you so I can tell people to look there too because there's there's videos, there's education tools, and and all of that. So if they look up the Dan L. Duncan Comprehensive Cancer Center at Baylor College of Medicine, and there's a, a thing that says cancer prevention, that's where they can come to, to our website. So we have an email that's cancerprevention at bcm.edu if they want to find out more information about anything that I've talked about. We have experts that are that are um, out there that can answer their questions. And then we are um, www.bcm.edu slash centers slash, it should be, I think it's just cancer prevention. Let me look. It should just be an easier. I think it's just bcm.edu slash cancer prevention. Um, and, you know, they can look on our website. Like I said, we have an online health library. We have information about our theater outreach program and educational resources. We have a volunteer program if they're local in Houston and they want to get more involved. I'm in charge of that volunteer program. Um, we have a, right. a we have a, on our website, we have a Facebook page and we have a Twitter um, so, so the, the best way is to sort of look us up on, on the web. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Allison, I, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Sure. No problem. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues where we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. 
We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.